engine running. <laughs> Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. This is the programme where we bring the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith and this week we're helping you to get to know your microbiome, finding out whether a better understanding of it could be the next frontier in helping us to live longer, healthier lives. We'll consider the origins of our codependence on gut bacteria and we'll learn about new treatments that are being developed for diseases of the gut and beyond. The microbiome is an immense collection of microbial cells found on and in our bodies, but the majority of them are bacteria and they reside in our guts. Despite the negative feelings that the word bacteria often evoke, given their role in spreading some diseases, they're in fact crucial in allowing us to lead healthy lives. They help us to digest things the body otherwise wouldn't be able to, for example, and helpful bacteria outcompete the bad guys within the intestine so they can't establish themselves and do us harm. But where do these bacteria come from in the first place, and how did they become so suited to living in our bodies? I spoke with Ruth Lay, who's a microbial ecologist at the Max Planck Institute, where she's been studying the co-evolution of humans and our bacteria. So when we're born, we're, we're rather extraordinary in that we're an extremely large organism that is completely germ-free. And this is an extraordinary thing to be because all large organisms are covered in microbes. Um, but yet when you develop in the womb, you're in this incredible protected space then when you come out, you are then colonized by microbes and they, they colonize over several years beginning at birth. But where these actually come from is your immediate environments. And what that really means is the people who are raising you or around you as a child are the, are the ones that are supplying you with the microbes that, that they have. And those microbes came from their parents and their families and, and, the, and your grandparents' microbes came from your great-grandparents and so on and so on. And then others, they might travel more widely between people and they might, for instance, spend time in water or in, in rivers and things like this and finally make their way into, into a human. So they've evolved to be specifically part of our microbial passengers then? It really does look like that. When you compare, for example, the microbes that we have to the ones that our great ape relatives have, you can see that there's a certain number of them that even share our evolutionary history. So for instance, we're our closest relatives are the chimpanzees. And then after that, you have gorillas and orangutans and so on. We know how we're related to each other, who shares a common ancestor with whom and how far back that goes. And you can do the same for some of the species in the gut. So you can tell that they've been in our lineage so long that when we became human, our microbes followed with us, if you will. So it follows then that if we have evolved to have this really close relationship with these microbial flora and fauna that come with us, that if they're not there or we upset the biological apple cart, we're presumably less healthy for it. Well, I think this is one of the questions. So we know now from, from recent work that when humans split off from our ancestor with the chimpanzee, when we got the sort of modern human lineages, a lot of them at that point were also lost. And so there's a lot that are in our great ape relatives that humans no longer have. 
And that might be just fine because we have a different kind of digestive tract from them and a different kind of diet. And we do very different things with our food. We cook our food. And so we might not need the sweet of bacteria, for instance, that are good at breaking down the fiber in leaves because we don't eat as much uh, leaf material as an ape, for instance. They're really folivores. And that's fine. I mean, we've culturally adapted to a new way of nourishing ourselves. But what's happening since we've taken that to a greater extreme is a little concerning. So what I mean by that is with a more industrialized lifestyle and reliance on very fiber poor foods, it looks like we are losing even more. And that's where the concern's coming in. I was going to ask you, because one of the words of the year that's going into the dictionary is ultra processed this year. Yeah. And this whole field has been really had a spotlight shone on it by Chris Van Tilliken writing his book about it. Mm-hmm. What impact does this modern ultra processed diet have on this assemblage of microbes? Well, I think it starves them. The biggest assemblage of microbes we have are in the large intestine. And they're there in order to break down fiber, which is everything that, that reaches the large intestine. And these ultra-processed foods don't have any fiber in them at all. They're so highly pre-digested, if you will, that when we eat them, we absorb sugars and fats and protein from them immediately. And, and there's really nothing and that that happens in the small intestine. And then there's no fiber left over for our gut microbes. And, and the, the concern is that, you know, over time they disappear and then you can't get them back. So what might be the health consequences of that? Well, I think this is what we're still trying to understand. But when you look at industrialized societies and their microbiomes compared to people who are living a lifestyle where they, at least with their nutrition, get much more fiber, they have a much more diverse microbiome. There's more species there. Their species can do more things. And there's a concern that we might be losing some of the beneficial functions that we take for granted, such as perhaps protecting us against pathogens, being able to break down toxins that come in because we don't have those microbes anymore. Another one that's a bit more difficult to figure out, I think, is just how they interact with our immune systems and and whether or not we're losing critical interactions with our immune systems such that then our immune systems might be doing things that work against us, such as the development of autoimmune diseases, for instance. Researchers in Ireland in recent years have also shown that there may even be signals travelling between what's going on in a a mum's gut and her Mm -hmm. developing baby's brain. So could it be that by bending our microbiome through all the factors we're exposed to, we're, we're not just impacting our own health, but we're potentially affecting the future health of a baby that hasn't even been born yet? That's entirely possible because when you look at what's in our blood... A lot of that is uh, molecules that are coming from the microbiome. And when you change the microbiome, you change this suite of molecules in the blood. And those molecules do reach the baby, the developing baby, through the placenta. That is the chemical environment that the baby then develops with. And if that is radically changed because the mother's microbiome has been depleted, that can have knock-on consequences that we, we still need to to understand, but uh, it could be quite real. So it definitely comes down to the saying, you are what you eat, I guess. (laughs) You're not just what you eat, though. You are what you eat and um, what your microbes have done with that, yes. Hasn't got quite 
the same ring to it, though, has it? That was Ruth Lay from the Max Planck Institute. This fairly recent realisation of the significant health implications of a well-maintained microbiome is all well and good, but if we're going to help everyone reap the benefits, there's a lot of work to be done identifying and experimenting with the range of beneficial bacterial species that colonise us. Working with DNA sampling technology, the University of Cambridge's Alex Almeida is helping to reveal the many mysteries that remain in this field, and he spoke to our own James Titko from his laboratory. We can look at the microbes as individual organisms, so the number of actually microbial cells we have in our body. So current estimates sit at around the 40 trillion microbial cells. Most of them are in the intestinal tract, that, that is clear. Now, if we take it another level, so when we break it up to the level of species, in my line of work, the way that I classify what is known and what is unknown is based on whether we can actually experimentally characterize these species. So the way we do this is we try to isolate them and culture them in the lab first so we can actually work with them and perform experiments. Current estimates of the essentially the whole repertoire of microbial species that have been identified in the gut 70% are unknown, so we don't have not been cultured. So that's a, a big limitation in the field and something that I'm looking forward in my research to clarifying a bit more. And we'll often hear that there are helpful and harmful bacteria that live within us at the same time. Help me to understand that a bit more. Can you provide some examples of bacteria that are good for us and ones that are not so good for us? So this definition of good and bad bacteria is actually something microbiologists don't really like to classify and, and, and use because whether a bacteria is good or bad is all about context. So it's all about the interaction of that bacteria with the host, what is the other types of bacteria that exist surrounding it, how they all interact together. What I can tell you is that there are like consistent trends in linking certain species with health or with disease phenotypes. One species is consistently associated with health and has been actually quite extensively discussed as a novel potential probiotic is a species called Fecalibacterium prosniti. So all bacterial species are named uh, with Latin names. It actually helps digest certain fibers and produce a compound that is known as short-chain fatty acids. So short-chain fatty acids have important roles in host inflammation. That has been strongly linked with maintaining gut equilibrium, gut homeostasis, and keeping things in check. On the other hand, potentially disease-associated species that has been consistently associated with colorectal cancer is a species known as Fusobacterium nucleatum. What studies have shown is that colorectal cancer patients are consistently enriched in bacteria belonging to these species, and there have been even been some experimental studies suggesting that the species actually involve in tumor growth development as well. Obviously, there are more complicated species that have a bit of a mix uh, of both, being good and bad, depending on context. The most classical example is E. coli. Actually, E. coli is a normal commensal of the gut and is found in most individuals at the very low abundance. If E. coli reaches a significant level of abundance in, in the gut, that can create problems. It can lead to high levels of inflammation. And even if certain strains of E. coli are able to translocate intestinally epithelial, that can create problems because the, the bacteria can transfer to the bloodstream, can transfer to other organs, and that will cause problems for the individual as well. This is why it's becoming an increasing priority within medicine to identify as many of the hidden bacteria in the gut that you spoke to earlier. Yeah, exactly. So obviously the ideal scenario is to really find species that are robust and strongly associated with health and can benefit different individuals in different contexts and different health states. But we really need to first 
take a fundamental approach in understanding what is really the, the biology of these species, what are they doing, what functions can they encode, before being too ambitious and actually immediately trying to use these species as potential probiotics. And so this is where we come to your research and the tools we have at our disposal to identify more of these species. So my research group is primarily a computational genomics lab. So genomics is the area that studies the DNA sequences of different organisms. In our field, for the microbiome world, we use what is called metagenomics, so it's beyond even genomics. So it's actually looking at the whole genetic material of a community. So we do metagenomics on a traditional microbiome sample. Usually what we work with and what we study are fecal samples to explore the intestinal microbiome. And we piece together these DNA sequences to make inferences about which species are there. So the DNA acts as a fingerprint, but since the DNA also acts as a sort of a blueprint for what the bacteria is able to do, so what proteins it's able to encode, we can predict the metabolism and the function of these bacteria by looking at the DNA. So we use large-scale sequence data to really make inferences about what is the role of the microbiome, which species are there, what are they doing in different health contexts. So tell me about some of the examples of species you've been able to link with certain diseases. So we have been looking at a wide range of diseases, actually. Some that are a bit more obvious, such as inflammatory bowel disease or colorectal cancer. But we have actually also been looking at diseases that are not directly associated with the gut, things like Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis. We definitely see a stronger link with diseases that occur in the gut. But even in cases of things like Parkinson's disease, there is definitely a strong link with the microbiome. The challenge is, is actually pinpointing when we find specific species linked to these diseases, why are they there? Is this just a correlation, as in, is it the species present there because, as a consequence of the disease, or is the species actually leading to a higher incidence of that disease? So we do find that there are some uncultured bacteria, so species that we know very little about are very strongly associated with health in different contexts. I mean, I can give you, I can give you some names, but to be honest, since these are uncultured and known species, their names are simply codes at this mm -hmm. point, so they're very, they carry very little meaning to, to, to people that are not directly in the field. But we are starting to see some, some good trends. So yeah, definitely highlighting there the difficulty with delineating cause and effect. What's the scale of the task there? How do we translate the work you're doing into medical diagnosis or treatments? I think there are two levels we can think about. So the short-term, more perhaps realistic goal is actually to use certain species as biomarkers of a healthier disease state. And I think this could help with certain diseases where diagnostic can be quite invasive. So if we think things like colorectal cancer, obviously the gold standard diagnosis is doing a colonoscopy of an individual. But that's very costly and also very invasive to the individual and carries some risk as well. So if we can develop a diagnostic tool, as a, a method that by analyzing a fecal sample, we can identify specific species or specific compositions of the microbiome that clearly distinguish a health and disease individual, and we can use that information to identify individuals that are greater disease risk, then those could then be selected for further in-depth screening. And in actually, for a diagnostic purpose, this question of correlation versus causation is actually not as important, because even if the microbe is a consequence of the disease, it can still act as a good biomarker of disease that could be used for a diagnostic purpose. Now, obviously, the field is becoming a bit more ambitious and thinking of how can we use the microbiome as a form of therapy to actually improve or protect against disease. And this becomes much more challenging. So in this case, we do need to establish causation. So we need to identify species that directly protect or directly cause a certain disease. And then after we have that information, we can think, okay, 
how can we enrich for that particular protected bacteria or how can we reduce the bacteria that potentially is causing disease. Alex Almeida, he's at the University of Cambridge's Department of Veterinary Medicine. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and still to come, how medicine is trying to mould the microbiome to defeat disease. Now, we've learned just how crucial the relationship between us and our gut bacteria is, so you won't be surprised to hear that when we do damage to our microbes, we could also be opening the door to health complications for ourselves. Antibiotics are used to treat and prevent bacterial infections, indeed they're lifesavers. But while they can kill bad bacteria, they also do damage to good bacteria too, leaving people vulnerable to being colonised with a pathogen that could make them ill. This problem is often approached with the use of even more antibiotics, which can lead to a vicious cycle with a progressively more deranged microbiome and bacteria that become increasingly antibiotic resistant. Indeed, the superbugs that develop as a result are seriously bad news. Earlier this year, the UN Environment Programme called antimicrobial resistance a principal public health challenge, and they suggested that as many as 10 million people a year could be dying from these infections by 2050. So what can we do about it? Well, Michael Woodworth from the Emory School of Medicine in America thinks part of the answer could lie in transplanting healthy bacteria from one person to another. And he's just published some clinical trial results after performing faecal microbiota transplants in kidney transplant patients who themselves had established antimicrobial resistance. We thought we would conduct a clinical trial to better understand if directly transplanting these whole communities of microbes from healthy people into people who are colonized with these resistant bacteria might be a way to try to reduce colonization without using more antibiotics. How did you do it? Because we dubbed this the transpusion, don't we? The, mm-hmm. the whole idea of recolonizing people with the, the right stuff. So I conducted this study with Dr. Colleen Kraft, who essentially helped to start the fecal transplant program at Emory in 2012. We identified one of the stool donors for that program that was very reliable and was very easy to work with and in-house manufactured a number of doses to transplant kidney transplant recipients who had had a problem with a resistant bacterial infection Uh, and then we recruited and enrolled 11 participants and they were randomized to either start with fecal microbiota transplant which we call an fmt for short or to start with an observation period with delayed FMT if they were still colonized with these resistant bacteria after a period of 36 days. Just before you tell us what happened, how did you administer the transplant to these people? Did they literally have to swallow this solution? That's sort of an area that is still being evaluated. What What is the best way to get these microbes in the right place? And in other studies, People have used colonoscopies, people have used nasal feeding tubes, but in this study we used enemas, and so we just directly instilled the the material through patient bottoms. And the reason for this was that we wanted to minimize the risk for the participants, and we didn't want to subject everybody to a colonoscopy or the potential additional risks 
of anesthesia. So what happened then? Once you've administered this, did, did any of the patients, before we talk about the transplanted people and the people who were watched to start with, did any of them get better on their own? Did they get rid of or kick out the resistant microbes and get back to a more normal microbiome? We were surprised that actually in, in the five patients that were randomized to start in the observation group, that is with a delayed FMT, if they were still positive, that none of them were culture negative at their last visit. And we're expecting that we might observe a little bit more frequent decolonization than this when just observing patients, but none of them were negative at their last visit prior to an FMT. And how did that compare with the people that you went in at the get-go and gave them the FMT? You transplanted the, the suspension of, of bugs in. When we directly compared the five patients that were randomized to a delayed FMT to the six patients that were randomized to start with an FMT, four out of the six patients that started with an FMT were negative at their last visit compared to none that were randomized to start with observation. And because the dose of FMT that's needed to reduce colonization is, is really not known, we set up the study to be able to offer patients a second treatment if they were still positive after one dose. And when we looked across all patients that got at least one FMT in our study, including those that had a delayed FMT after a period of observation, eight out of 10 patients that were treated with FMT were negative at their last visit. Do you know how it's working? Why should just shoving in more microbes into an environment which is already teeming with microbes, why should that displace the bad guys in the way that it did? Well, this is really the, the work to do. And we have ideas based on some of the analysis that was done in this paper some of it we think is similar to what we've seen in patients that have this problem, recurrent C. difficile infection that has been treated the most with FMT. And we think that some patients that are colonized with resistant bacteria really have a very abnormal microbiome. They're very disrupted, and they, they really just don't have a similar amount of the healthy bacteria that we might expect to see in people that are walking around that are not colonized with these resistant bacteria. And those patients responded very quickly when we saw the bacteria from the donor show up in the data from the recipients. Now, on the other hand, there were a lot of patients that were in our study that actually seemed to have sort of a milder set of disruptions in their microbiome. And for these patients, it's a little bit less clear and there's more work to be done, but we do think that there are similar changes in what these microbes are doing after FMT that seem like they are doing more activities that are helpful for the host and also in reducing the virulence of other bacteria. Very encouraging and positive results there. That was Michael Woodworth. He's at Emory Medical School. But... As promising as faecal transplants might be for some people, they are not a silver bullet for everyone with antimicrobial resistance. We need more treatment options in our arsenals, and there's a strong sense that bacteriophages, these are viruses that exclusively attack bacterial cells, might 
be one of them. Tom Ireland is the author of The Good Virus, the untold story of phages. People have been studying the different bacterial communities in the gut for a long time, but there's actually another sort of layer of microbe in the gut, the viruses that infect those bacteria. So when we say viruses, we often think of bad viruses that make us ill, but actually the majority of viruses in our gut are viruses that infect bacteria. And so these are called bacteriophages or just phages for short. These can be really useful as a way to modulate and change those bacterial communities in our body. So if we have a particular bacteria that's causing a problem, we can then use a virus to kill that particular bacteria. Um, And this isn't actually a new idea. People have been using these viruses to kill off bacterial infections before we had um, antibiotics like penicillin. The idea has gone in and out of fashion over the years, and it's just really starting to be taken seriously again because of the rise in antibiotic-resistant bacteria that our antibiotics are just not effective on. And is that the major advantage then? You've got a way of almost fighting fire with fire. We're not giving drugs. We're not having to give other bacteria, which which might carry other risks. You're using something that's discreet for the bacteria and would be there anyway. Yeah, so we have trillions of these phages in our guts all the time. So having the right phages in our guts are important, just like having the right bacteria are important. The idea of using this so-called phage therapy is that we just give that immune system a boost and we make sure that the right phages the right viruses are in the intestines and they can kill the specific type of bacteria that we're looking to get rid of. Would this mean then that if someone has a particular class of antimicrobial resistance, would it be then that we would have specific phages in a pot and if we knew someone carried those bacteria, we could administer these phages and they would go through them and hopefully wipe out the bad bacteria? Yeah, that's the idea. There are so many different types of these viruses out there in the world that ideally you would have two or three different types of virus that can target that particular species. Bacteria can develop resistance to these viruses, just like they can develop resistance to antibiotic drugs. But if you can hit them with two or three different phages, different viruses at the same time, then the the likelihood that they can fight off all three of those viruses is absolutely tiny. But it's taking a long time to get it into the hospitals and into, into clinical practice. Is that just because we've got other alternatives that we regard as easier? Or is it just that, that people haven't have found this a bit risky and, and they haven't invested hard enough in it and, it and it could be just a door waiting to be opened, as it were? Yeah, I think there's an element of we've just had antibiotics for so long, it's just the first thing that clinicians reach for when there's a bacterial infection. But using a virus in the human body as medicine, there is an inherent difficulty to that. When you think of something like dose, how much do you give when the medicine itself self-replicates? You know, if it works, it's going to replicate in the body. There's also all sorts of other complications to think of. You know, you have to find exactly the right phage for the patient, which means doing some lab work for every patient. And there's a kind of lack of regulations and a, a regulatory framework around this. So this is not something that doctors or drug regulators are used to using. So people kind of don't know where to start. It's much more complicated than just giving someone an antibiotic and saying, take two of these a day for two weeks. There are a number of other conditions as well, though. We, we call them non-communicable diseases, where your microbiome goes off kilter. 
or if you've taken certain classes of drugs, it can affect your microbiome and that can have knock-on effects for your health because, as people often say, your bowel bugs see your dinner before you do and if you disrupt them, you do have a lot of consequences for the rest of your body. So are there also grounds to consider using phage therapy to, to remould, refashion, to replenish, as it were, the normal makeup of, of a healthy microbiome in some people for other disease indications? We're starting to hear people look at things like virus-based probiotics. So instead of bacterial probiotics where you drink a drink that's got friendly bacteria in it and it kind of seeds the colonization of your guts with better bacteria, you could have the same thing but with viruses. So you drink some good viruses and that hopefully kind of creates a healthier environment in your guts. There's also been some interesting work that combines faecal transplants with phage therapy. So if you've got a particularly nasty bacteria in your gut, you don't want your nice new poo to be recolonized by that bacteria. So you would combine a faecal transplant with phage therapy. So you get your new poo in your bowels and you have some phages so that any remnants of that bacteria that was causing the problem are wiped out by the phages. So yeah, there's lots of different ways that you can use phages potentially, not just diseases of the intestines and of the gut, but you know, cardiovascular diseases, even neurological diseases, diabetes. It's a fascinating area. And um, we know more about the bacteria in the gut and how that works, but we're only just starting to understand this additional layer uh, have we got a paucity of evidence at the moment then? Is, is it that we need to now start doing clinical trials? We know we can do this. We know it works in other situations outside the body or in animals, for example. But now we, we really do need to do some clinical trials and get some robust clinical data to really give clinicians the confidence that this is the way to go. As I said, this isn't a particularly new idea, the idea of using viruses to kill bacterial infections. And getting good data from clinical trials has always been a problem. So phage therapy can have really spectacular results on individual patients where you've matched the right phage to the bacteria that you want to get rid of. If you have slightly different strains of bacteria among those different patients, it can mean that it works on some and doesn't work so well on others. The good news is there's, there's lots of good information that phages are very safe. There's been so many trials of phages over many years and very few of them ever report any side effects. And that's probably because we live with phages in and on us all the time. So there's very few side effects. It's a very safe idea. And there's also been studies using kind of simulations of the human gut that show phages can be used to get rid of all sorts of drug-resistant bacteria. It's just a case now of working out some regulations that allow for the unusual characteristics of a medicine based on a virus and designing some clinical trials that kind of take these unique circumstances into account. Tom Ireland there, and that's where we have to leave it for this time. Do be sure to join us next week when we're going to be exploring the eccentric world of animal breeding. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening, and until next time, from all of us here at The Naked Scientist, goodbye. <laughs>